how much we're doing. Okay. Where are we starting that? Is it six or seven? It's at seven on Friday night. Five thirty a.m. No, I don't. Seven seven o'clock. It's it's not in the bulletin, but I presume it's on the flyer. Yeah. Seven o'clock. Certainly. are due. So you all probably have all that done already. SGBA Winter Blast, that's coming up quick as well. That's in two weeks, February 2nd through 4th. And there's a poster on the helps board for that. And then obviously if you have some question, you can ask Jared or Laura. All right, what else? That's it. Scripture for Meditation, Psalm 127. Let's stand together and open our service. <clears throat> Ed, would you open for us this morning? Ed, would you open for us this morning? Okay. Father in heaven, thank you so very much for this place to come to. Believers, Lord, you are worthy of all our praise in heaven. Our souls this morning, voices. Be with those who could not be here. Comfort them. 
morning. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to page 455, 455 in the brown. <clears throat> So we're going to go with Naomi. Go ahead, Naomi. Favorite hymn? 
story? Tell me the old, old story. What number do you know? No. Have you were playing that this morning? Were you playing that this morning? 424. In the brown. Do you have a reason for this one, Naomi?
Our scripture reading this morning will be in 2 Samuel, the 12th chapter, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 25. Would you join me in standing as we read the Holy Scripture. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin, but you are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive... You fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. And he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. Father, may you bless this word, this holy inspired scripture. Amen. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 482, 482 in the brown. <clears throat> Thank you. 
Our scripture text this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 12. Since this is Right to Life Sunday, we are departing from our normal uh, series to talk about the problem of uh, the ending of life that goes on in our country every day. 73 abortions per day in Michigan. That's just Michigan. There has been a shift in society concerning life And I want to deal with some of that this morning. And as we do, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the fact that you speak to every issue of life. From the little babies that come into our world to the most aged of our adults. We read a text that dealt with from birth to gray hair. You're in it all. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to see that. What we therefore do in terms of how we care for one another in that lifespan, you hold us accountable. And I pray that we'll learn from the scriptures where your great emphasis is. We'll praise you for what you teach us. Our society, our world is in a world of hurt because of the abortion industry that's in our country. We do pray your forgiveness. We pray for more active involvement in fighting for the truth. Bless our people that are ill today, and we're thankful that many are well again, feeling better. That's an answer to prayer this week. Pray your blessing upon your word. May it be well with our souls, in Christ's name. Amen. Been a shift in our society with regard to life. I'm sure you all know that. We looked at David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, resulting in her becoming pregnant. And David's attempt to pawn the child off on Uriah, her husband, by bringing him home from the war with the hope that he would sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, so David's sin would be (coughs) covered over. Well, the text before us indicates that David never did get away with this treachery. God had watched the whole sinful scenario unfold before his eyes. Nathan the prophet was sent to David to explain the consequences of his willful sin. Not only would David's wives be sexually violated and the disgrace seen by the whole nation in broad daylight, verse 11, but David and Bathsheba's child was struck by the Lord, verse 15, with a terminal illness from which he did not recover. Despite David's fasting and prayer for many days, on the seventh day the child died, verse 18 says, 
And the servants were completely confused when David got up from the ground, took a bath, anointed himself with lotion, put on clean clothes, and then went into the house of the Lord, and believe it or not, verse 20, worshipped. Is this man unusual or what? A great sorrow has come into his life, and he gets up from the ground, showers, cleans up, presents himself before the Lord in the temple, and worships God. And after that, he went home and had a meal. His servants could not contain themselves anymore, and they asked, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted, you wept, and now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? Verse 21. So David explains. He says, I fasted and I wept, thinking, who knows? I mean... The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, that is when, when he dies, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. What we see is David bowing to the chastening of the Lord, but he kept his faith. He kept his faith. You don't see him saying to God, well, since you took my child, I, I hate you and you and I are through. No. Amidst all of his pain and sorrow, there's something peaceful and wonderful. And that is the belief by David that God and God alone has the right to take the life of a child and for reasons satisfactory to himself. If this is God's will, then so be it. But let not man or woman play God in these matters. God as creator is to be praised and worshipped whichever way he goes. I think it's similar to Job's consolation at the death of all of his adult children. And all in one day. They were killed when the house in which they were feasting collapsed from a strong wind, and they perished. And Job responded, well, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. There was no wrong done because God may do with his creation what he wills. Even when one thinks of their station or position in life, Paul, were, Paul words uh, provide an accurate description. He says, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter, in this case God, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Romans 9, verse 20 and 21. A fine porcelain vase to show beautiful flowers or a common clay pot, no matter, the choice is God's. That's what Paul says. The result is the work of his hand, and if he chooses to beautify one and submit the other to common kitchen cookery, 
As creator, he has that prerogative and he has that right without fear of contradiction. He has that right without fear of interrogation. Why did you make me like this? So then when we come to the abortion issue, which has to do with people playing God, with people deciding for themselves who of their offspring will live and who will die, unlike David, there is no thought of God in the decision-making process, but simply a self-centered act which is justified for economic or personal reasons. Forty-five years ago, the Supreme Court set God aside in these matters and made it legal for women on their own and with no thought of any offense to God to end the life of their unborn children through abortion. It was not the beginning of abortion, not even in this country, but it was the legalization of it. The shift in thinking then was from is it right, which is a moral question, to is it legal? And as we know it turned out, legal trumps moral every time now in our country. Now with no more than a collusion between a woman and her doctor, a baby's life can be ended in a clinic in any trimester of fetal development and the father has no say in it. No say in it. To make the murder of the innocent more acceptable in the public eye, agencies like Planned Parenthood have worked hard to adopt new language which redefines life and redefines murder so that the sting of the immorality of abortion is lessened. A careful effort has been made to remove from public consciousness any concept of homicide or murder when we talk of abortion. The emphasis has been shifted from the right of the unborn to life and happiness to the right of women to do in private whatever they wish to do with their own bodies, as it is said, regardless of the consequences which affect the child which they care. All of this has been successful, however, because Planned Parenthood plays on the selfish propensity of their clients. Women's rights, the need to be free, the expense of raising a child, da 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 That's always their arguments. The crisis pregnancy centers, however, have fought that long and hard for many years. An article written in the World Journey magazine, which is a publication out of the UK, states, crisis pregnancy centers have been making a difference in the lives of millions of women and the unborn for decades now. Organized to respond to the ongoing assault on life and to restore the dignity of women and men, crisis pregnancy centers have helped to reduce the number of abortions as volunteers reveal the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual impact of this medical procedure. 
As some people say, abortion leaves one person dead and at least one person wounded. None of this sits well with those who fall under the pro-choice umbrella, people whose sole objective is to see abortions carried out. Choice is espoused by advocates, but when it comes to helping women explore others and other options, including giving birth, the clinics have a vested interest that an abortion be accomplished. Crisis pregnancy centers are a business threat. And if the underlying spiritual aspects are included, they undermine the schemes of the evil one. That spiritual battle is played out across the land, indeed around the world, becoming quite evident recently when New York City passed a law requiring the crisis pregnancy centers to disclose in advertisements and at their facilities what services they do not provide, including abortions and crisis pregnancy centers. So what they're saying is the law of the land says, you got to tell people what you're not doing as well as what you are doing. And you have to hang that on the wall in your crisis pregnancy center. In reality, it is, it, the reality is that the crisis pregnancy centers have cost the abortion industry millions and millions of dollars in unperformed abortions. In Michigan alone, abortions have dropped from an all-time high of 49,098 in 1987 to 26,395 in 2016. That's just about half, one-half what it used to be. Thus, the pro-life movement he is making successful inroads into the protection of the lives of the unborn. But even so, we had to admit that the killing is still outrageously high. As Christians who know and love God, we cannot withdraw from the battle because the war has not yet been won. Now, how is it that, abor that abortion thrives? Well, it thrives on both theological and scientific ignorance. I realize that people of the world are not interested in what God has to say about the origin of life. But interested or not, we as God's people must be careful to know the facts ourselves and to relate them to those who have buried their heads in the sand. Yes, what are these facts that we should relate to our neighbors, friends, co-workers fact number one that God himself is responsible for the formation of a child within the mother's womb such formation is in accordance with God's pre-plan Jeremiah was told by God before I formed you in the womb I knew you before you were born I set you apart I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. I see that as God's active part in Jeremiah's life before he was formed in the womb. God was working to form Jeremiah. 
And before him there was David, who said to God, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was born, together your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before any of them ever came to be. Psalm 139, verse 13, the following, and so writes David. This is before the scientific age. This is before they could do uh, 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 searches in the womb and so forth to see the viability of children and so forth. Scientific fact is that conception involves 46 chromosomes. They're found in one cell, and in those chromosomes, every, every menu for your life and how you're going to turn out is implanted by God in each and every cell. Unbelievable. All the genetic information is there. Day 20, the foundation of the brain is in place, the spinal cord is in place, the heart is beating on its own in place. Day 20. In six weeks, the baby's liver is producing its own blood separate from mom. Its own blood. In eight weeks, two months, the stomach is formed, the kidneys are formed, 40 muscle sets are formed and working. And in 12 weeks, the baby is able to move, to squint, to open and close its hands, its fist. The muscles are able to contract. 12 weeks. And I might say that abortion in America is permissible any of those months, clear up through the 12th week and beyond. David says he was fearfully and wonderfully made. But further back than David, there was Job who in discussing his own relationship to his servants in his household said to them, did not he, God, who made me in the womb, make them, you servants? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Job 31 verse 15. You know, it is believed um, by theologians that Job really is the oldest book of the Bible. Not Genesis. Genesis deals with beginnings, this to be sure. But chronologically, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And so way back, the first book of the Bible, Job, and he's saying way back then, <laughs> it wasn't it the truth that God formed you servants as well as forming me in our mother's wombs? Where's the science for that? The science is in the scientist, who is the Lord of glory, (laughs) 
who knows all about us. And all of these scriptures indicate that God himself was responsible for the formation of these people within the mother's wombs. And what is more, the very existence of these individuals was pre-planned by God with full anticipation of their service to God. Priest, as the case of Job with his family, chapter 1, verse 5. David as a king before Israel. Jeremiah as a prophet. Priest, king, prophet. In fact, it is the direct personal involvement of God in the growth process of the individual within the womb which forms the rationale that all men, regardless of their nationality, all men, regardless of their ethnic origin, owe their allegiance to God who created them. This is why when Jeremiah said, Ah, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. God rebuked him. And he said to Jeremiah, Do not say, I am only a child. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you. Jeremiah 1 verse 6. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What right does God have to appoint anyone to do a task? Well, he has the right of sovereign Lord who even before our birth says to us, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. He is the right of creator of whom Job said, he made me in the womb. He is the right of sustainer of whom David wrote, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God himself is responsible for the formation of the child within the mother's womb, and not only those whom we might call the people of God, but all mankind everywhere. Fact number two, the beginning of human life occurs at conception and not something later in the growth cycle. So, well, everybody knows that. Oh, really? Let me read you an article, or excerpts from an article, by two ethicists, they call themselves, ethicists, ethic people. They know what's right and what's moral. Writing in the Journal of Medical Ethics in the United Kingdom, they write on this whole subject of abortion. Here's what they write. There is no difference in moral status between a child one day before birth and a child one day after birth. Birth is merely a changing of locations, not a change from non-personhood to personhood. That's the Christian position. The authors, the ethicists, however, say the moral status of an infant is equivalent is equivalent to that of a fetus in the sense that both lack those properties that justify the attrition, attribution of a right to life in an individual. Rather being, than being actual persons, newborns are mm, potential persons. They explain both a fetus 
And a newborn, certainly are human beings and potential persons, but neither is a person in the sense of subject of a moral right to life. Whoa. So if we can say that they're not persons yet, they're something different than a person, and only a person is right to life. They go on, parents should be able to have the baby killed if it turned out to be disabled without their knowledge before birth. These ethicists preferred the use of the phrase after birth abortion rather than the word infanticide to emphasize that the moral status of the individual killed is comparable with the fetus. The authors argued the alleged right of individuals such as fetuses and newborns to develop their potentiality is overridden by the interests of actual people, which would be parents or family or society, to pursue their own well-being because, as we have already judged and argued, merely potential people cannot be harmed by not being brought into existence. That's a lot of gobbledygook, isn't it? It's the slippery slope of which Judge Bork wrote a wonderful book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah. You should read the book. These authors went on to say, since non-persons have no moral right to life, there are no reasons for banning after-birth abortions. That would be infanticide. Ah, right out of the Nazi playbook. Right out of Malthus. Right out of Margaret Sanger. What about all this? The beginning of human life occurs at conception. God, in describing Ephraim's rebellion towards him and his subsequent judgment, says that he will see to it that there is, and I'm reading scripture, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they rear children, I will bereave them of every one. Hosea 9, verse 11 and 12. So here we observe that children born to Ephraim had their start with conception. There's no notion that their existence as a human being began sometime, you know, after birth. This same process is portrayed in the case of David and Bathsheba. After their one night affair, we read the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant, 2 Samuel 11, verse 5. And in verse 27 says she became his wife and bore him a son. So we have conception resulting in pregnancy, resulting in birth. The baby at the end was alive as a developing baby from the beginning. From the beginning. David puts it this way, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
Psalm 51, verse 5. Obviously, David considered himself to be alive and present at conception as well as at the time of his birth. Solomon, writing in the Song of Solomon, in contemplation of his beloved, writes, Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Place me as a seal over your heart. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5. He's saying that his beloved existed at conception. It was a you that was conceived, not an it that was conceived. That God has control of the entire life cycle is borne out in what God said to Israel in Isaiah 46, verse 3 and following. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain in the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried you since your birth. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who sustained you. I have made you and I will carry you. Remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take it to heart. I am God. There's no other. I am God and there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46 verse 3 and 5. Simply put, human life begins at conception and not somewhere else in the growth cycle. Fact number three. It is because God is responsible for the formation of a child within the womb and because his, this human life begins at conception that scripture speaks repeatedly of children being the gift of God to parents. When Esau had his reunion with Jacob after their estranged parting, he looked up and saw the women and the children, and he said to Jacob, Who are these with you? And Jacob responded, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Genesis 33, verse 5. In Psalm 127, verse 3, Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from him. Psalm 13, verse 9. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. We have it in the history of the Old Testament. Sarah was barren and God gave her Isaac. Rachel was barren and God gave her Joseph. Hannah was barren and God gave her Samuel. Elizabeth was barren and God gave her John the Baptist. These people all acknowledge that Christ, or excuse me, the children were gifts of uh, from God to their families. I just happened to think of another one, and that was Samson. <laughs> was a gift to Manoah's wife. Her, her name is not named in the scripture, so I, for, I forgot. There's no name to give you about her. She's just called Samson's uh, mother. But not only did God's people realize this, the heathen as well recognized the same thing. Think about when Abraham deceived Abimelech by saying that Sarah was his sister. It says the Lord closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife Sarah, which Abimelech was planning to marry, right? Genesis 20, verse 18. God had the power and he exercised the power of closing up all the wombs in the land of the Philistines of whom Abimelech was the king. 
Let me tell you something. If God shuts off the spigot, if there's no wombs in a country producing babies, it won't be very long and there won't be that country anymore. Children are God's gift. Children are God's gift. Weak children, strong children, healthy children, sick children, mentally sharp children, mentally retarded children, all are creatures of God and are his gift to us, to the parents of our country. There's a wonderful text here in Exodus 4, verse 11, when Moses was complaining about the fact that God was getting ready to send him to Egypt to talk to Pharaoh about releasing the Israelites and letting them go. And Moses kept saying, ah, I can't speak very well. You know, I'm not an orator. And you wanted me to go before the king of Egypt, this guy that rules land everywhere. I can't do that. I'm not a good speaker. I'll stumble. I'll trip. I'll... Here's what God said. The Lord said to Moses, who gave man his mouth? Good question. Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Answer, is it not I, the Lord? What he was saying to Moses, you're complaining to me about your inability to speak? Can I, who do all these other things, can I override that in you? Isaiah 45, verse 9 and following, God says, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. Do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands. Wow. God is saying, I, they're my children. I'll take care of them. And I don't need you instructing me. Fact number four, because children... Are God's gift, they are to be considered worthy of great value, and they are to be re reared with a view to the glory of God. Now, nations don't do this, pagans don't do this, but nonetheless, that is the principle of Scripture. You want it from the words of Christ? Jesus taught whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes any one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Matthew 18, verse 5 and 6. Here the issue of sinning against children is paramount. Verse 10, see that no one look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. In other words, <coughs> excuse me, God is always on a face-to-face -face basis 
with the angelic representatives of, our, of his children. And then Jesus proceeded to tell the story of the shepherd who left his 99 sheep in the sheepfold and went out to find the one that was lost. And we think he's talking about sheep. We think he's talking about woolly woolly creatures. Or if not that, about adults that have wandered away. But here's the punchline. Let me give it to you. Matthew 18, verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. The lost sheep that he goes to fetch is the child that believes in him. The abortion industry in general and the selfish and God-ignorant parents in particular will have to give an account to God of heaven for what they did with his children, his gift to humanity, and for how they despise God in the process. For when they aborted his children, they did it to him. Because all people, children included, are created in the image of God, by God, and for his glory. James writes, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James 1, verse 27. Our speaker, by the way, men, on uh, Friday night, is going to be talking about this verse, what true religion is caring of orphans and widows. You don't want to miss that. Well, we are being polluted by the world. The world is shaping our theology. It's shaping our practices more than God and his word is shaping our practices. With the door to legalize murder of our nation's children thrown wide open, the door has also been open for abortions. Stepchildren, what do you mean by stepchildren? We're all infanticide. What if the child survives the abortion? What if the baby that was supposed to die from a saline solution being introduced to the womb, what if it comes out alive and survives? They're outside the womb. Yet these same babies are placed in cold stainless steel bowls and refused warmth and food and water until they die. And that's exactly what the Romans did in the first century. They aborted their babies, or they gave birth to their babies, stuck them in bowls, and set them on the walls of Rome until they died from the elements. Ah, a pagan society. Rome. <laughs> ah, a pagan society. The USA. And so we have infanticide. What about assisted suicide? What about mercy killings? That's all come out of the abortion industry as well. Healthcare Weekly Review, a Michigan newspaper for medical professionals named Dr. Jack Kevorkian, Man of the Year 
No Jack Kevorkian was. Man of the year. Because, as the editor explained, Kevorkian, I'm reading scripture, or not scripture, I'm reading their quote, Kevorkian exposed our failure to accommodate death as a part of health care. <laughs> Did you get that? Isn't that an absurd statement? Death is an appropriate part of health care. No, that's not what they said. They said accommodating death is part of health care. Kevorkian, you remember, came under great notoriety for the invention of his suicide machine in which he injected lethal chemicals into people when he attached them to their machines. 26 states have criminal prohibition against assisted suicide and those that don't prosecute such they consider it homicide. Well, Kevorkian, who's a Michiganer, by the way, was convicted of homicide and sentenced to eight years in prison. Never got out. He died on 6-3 of 2011 at the age of 63. Thankfully, the Michigan judicial system worked on that. Euthanasia is the latest stepchild of abortion. Euthanasia, we are told, does not mean withholding or discontinuing heroic or unnecessary or futile experimental or unduly burdensome treatments from patients that may be, that may be appropriate as a medical procedure. Oh, really? The International Anti-Euthanasia Task Force defines euthanasia as any action or omission designed to kill. Any act, that would be positive, omission, not doing something, designed to kill. Brethren, I say this respectfully, but you best be alert to hospice. Hospice people have a different mentality. Say, well, what's their mentality? Have you ever worked with Somebody all the way through hospice? I have. None of our people. They will withhold food. They will withhold fluids, water. So that the person dies. Say, oh, that's not real. Oh, yes, it's real. I was there. Amen. I saw it. Euthanasia is becoming so much a part of our society throughout the USA that hospitals are required to ask patients if they wish to fill out a self-determination document, such as a living will. In Michigan, living wills are not legally binding. So instead, durable powers of attorney, health care associated. 
Some trusted individual says what happens to you. And it has to be a document that cannot be open to interpretation. Euthanasia. Let's get rid of the elderly. Brethren, we are living in the last days. Jesus prophesied, brother will betray brother to death, a father his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. I'm reading scripture. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Matthew 10, verse 21. What's the remedy? He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Proverbs 28, verse 13. In the case of David, God took his child, the point being that God and God alone has that prerogative as creator and maker to sustain or give life or revoke life as it might be. So abortionists are playing God every day. What happens to all those murdered babies? Let me give you a verse that I think is appropriate. Here it is. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Psalm 27, verse 10. What are you saying? Well, I'm not saying it. I think God is saying it. If they're his children, and we've already established that, if he's the one that gave the child children to the parents, if they do the unthinkable and abort that child, they're still his children. And God is saying, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive I think we got some big surprises coming in glory. Hopefully, wonderful surprises. All those who populate or will populate the kingdom of God. I don't know, and this is, a, this is the, uh, one of the arguments of, or discussions of theologians. When a baby dies, and they, they go to be with the Lord, when they go to be to the, with the Lord, are they babies for eternity or are they adults? I don't know. <laughs> there are some scriptures that talk about the child leading a lion, right? In the kingdom of God. Or putting his or her hand on the um, snake hole of a cobra, an adder, and not worrying of being worried about it and so forth. So I don't know. I know this. The God of all the earth will do right. And he has a heart for his children that far exceeds anything you and I have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We live in a country that um, loves death. Never seen anything like it. People love death. They talk of death as though it were their friend. Of, well, you know... Someday it'll all be over and my pain and suffering will be gone. Mm, not necessarily. They talk of death as ending anguish, of taking us into a new realm. 
which they think will be better than the realm we're in now. I pray that you will show us the truth from your word. May we understand that abortion, like any other sin, is forgivable by Christ. Praise the Lord, it's forgivable by Christ. Whatever has been our circumstances, and I know that there are people who have had abortions, and then God saved them, and they regret it, and they're in anguish about it, and they're torn in heart about it. The forgiveness of Christ is there for that, as well as for any sin. My immorality, my wrong thoughts, my lashing out tongue, my anger, my hatred, whatever my sins are forgivable and whatever sins that others have done are forgivable because of Christ's blood. We bless thee, Lord, for that. Thank you, and we praise you. Amen. Our closing hymn is 426 in the brown hymnal. 426. That cannot be right. 462. 462. 462. Here we go. 
Amen. Tonight we continue in our study of John's Gospel. Boy, it's been weeks. What, six weeks? Probably. Since we've been in the study of John because of Christmas and the concert and all of the various things. But that's tonight at 6. From 6 to 6.30 we eat finger foods that you bring. And then from 6.30 we have our Bible study. And tonight we're going to finish, God willing, uh, John 17, which is the high priestly prayer of our Lord. We're on sacred ground when we're in that prayer, let me tell you. And uh, it's a marvelous prayer. Think about it. So that'll be tonight at 6 o'clock. Hope to see you all there. Thank you. We're dismissed.